Amen. Thank you. Thank you to Brother Paul Henning for coming and being with us today. Um, many of you know that Brother Shane and his family have been sick over the past week and so was not able to be here. I'm always thankful for our praise team and for Brother Paul anytime he comes to be with us. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We'll continue this morning uh, our series looking through the book of Acts. We saw last week uh, Jesus' last in-person meeting uh, with the disciples here on earth before he ascended back to heaven, where, as I like to say in today's terms, he continued working remotely um, through his people and through the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so today we're going to see really the first section of Scripture that we've seen after Jesus leaves earth completely and ascends back to heaven. So we're going to get a glimpse of what early life in the church looked like after Jesus wasn't physically here to guide the disciples and to guide those that followed him. So there are five things that we'll see today for those of you that take notes. First one's just the setting, the introduction to this text. Then we're going to see how they knew what was going on. Right? How in the world did they understand all the things that had happened and all the things that were going on around them? We're going to see how they knew what to do next. Right? Jesus has been their guide, he's been their teacher, he's been there with them. Now that he's gone, how do they know what to do next? Uh, and today as we see them choosing a 12th apostle to replace Judas, we'll see what was necessary for that 12th apostle. And then the last thing is we'll see ultimately how they made the decision about who that apostle would be. So in Acts chapter 1, let's begin by looking at verses 12 through 14 to get an introduction. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here's our setting, right? They go to the mount and they meet with Jesus for the last time in person. And he gives them instructions and he's already told them that when he leaves that they should go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they've done. They go, they make the short trip back to Jerusalem. They go to the place where they've been staying, this large upper room. Uh, it's large enough to hold at least 120 people, so they're in this large room. But when they get there, what they don't do to me is as significant as what they actually do. When they get there, we see uh, that it's the 11 original disciples that are left living and some others, the other disciples, other people that have been following Jesus. So the women that are referenced several times, women that had followed Jesus and his ministry, and Mary and Jesus' brothers are all there. And what are they not doing? Well, they're not fretting. It doesn't give us any indication of that. Uh, it doesn't give us any indication that they're just being idle. That they say, well, until the Holy Spirit comes, we'll just kind of kick up our feet and rest. No, we see that they are doing some specific things to prepare themselves. And we also see that they're not jockeying for position, right? There is a void in the power structure at this point, it seems. Jesus has been the head and been the leader, and now he is gone. And a lot of times there's immediately, in worldly context, a power grab whenever that happens. But we don't see that here. No, what we actually see 
is that they are unified. We see that they are together. It says in verse 14, all these with one accord. So they're unified, right? They're on the same page. They are devoting themselves to the same thing. And what is that thing to prayer? So we see that they go back and they are obedient. Jesus said, when I leave, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So what do they do when he leaves? They go to Jerusalem. They were obedient to Christ's commands. They were unified. They were working together. And they were praying as they waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. Very significant things that we see in the setting of this text. So that's where they are. And as they're there gathered together, in verse 15, we're going to see a speech, a fairly short speech, but a speech here that Peter gives to the rest of the followers. And it's going to tell them how they can understand what just took place. How can they process all that has happened in the last 40 to 50 days for them, right? The crucifixion and the resurrection and Jesus is teaching to them and Jesus commissioning them and Jesus ascending back to heaven. How can they understand all these things? How can they know what's going on? Look with me in verse 15. I'll go ahead and tell you for the moment we're going to skip 18 and 19. We'll come back to it, but I want you to see his speech as one unit together. So beginning in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up, um, stood up among the brothers, the company of the persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this testimony. And in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So that's the end of his speech there. So, so Peter, as they're there together, as there's probably some questions that have arisen, right? If you're not familiar, if, if, if you don't remember exactly what's going on with Judas, right? Judas is one of Jesus' disciples. He's been with them this entire time. Um, he defects and, and actually leads the soldiers to Jesus, uh, gives them the signal so that they'll know which one is Jesus, so that they'll know who they should arrest, uh, is paid for doing it, ends up dying a terrible death. And so that is what he's referring to here. How can they know that that was supposed to be the plan? I'm sure there were a lot of questions in their mind. Uh, did Jesus make a mistake by choosing Judas? Right? I'm sure this question circulated among the followers. Uh, was Judas's rebellion a surprise to Jesus? I'm sure this is something they're probably debating. Did it have to go this way, the way that it did? And so as they're there and as they're together, as they're praying and as they're waiting, Peter stands up and specifically speaks to these things. And he tells them, he says, the scripture had to be fulfilled. What was written, what was prophesied by David years ago, had to be fulfilled. And so what he's specifically talking about, he gives a short quote at the beginning of, of verse 20 that says, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now what he's doing there is he is quoting Psalm 69. In just a second, we're going to read a little bit more of Psalm 69. But Psalm 69 is a psalm that was written that he gives us there attributed to David. David writes this psalm, and it's a prayer 
and a prophecy about what will happen to the enemies of righteous people. So you have righteous people and you have their enemies, and this psalm is what will happen to the enemies of those righteous people. So look with me, if you want to, in Psalm 69, we have the text for you. Beginning in verse 24, we won't read all of it, but this gives a pretty good glimpse of what it looks like. It says, Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. There's the part he quoted. For they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So here we have, and if you read through the, the psalm, this is an imprecatory psalm. This is a psalm that is a prayer against the enemy of righteous people. But what, what Peter does for us here, and what Peter does for the other followers here, is he helps us understand that this wasn't a psalm that was specifically about David and his enemies. What it actually was, was a prophecy about Jesus and his enemy, Judas. That is how he's applying the scripture here. That's how we understand what he's saying whenever he says that it had to be fulfilled what the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So Judas's acts were not a surprise to Jesus. Judas being chosen among the twelve was not a mistake by Jesus. In fact, it had been prophesied and told a long, long time before this happened that this was going to take place, that this was part of the plan. And we see, if you look with me in verses 18 and 19, uh, parentheses that, that Luke gives us, just in case we don't remember what happened to Judas, we see that it was fulfilled, what was prophesied in Psalm 69. It says, Now this man talking about Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. And so exactly what we see would happen to the enemies, that they would be destroyed, that they would be blotted out from among the living, is exactly what happened to Judas. So point one this morning, Scripture informed the apostles about what was going on. They, there were probably lots of questions, right? As Jesus leaves, there are questions about how they understood all this that went down. And Peter stands up and says, Brothers, we should not be surprised. We should not feel lost. This has already been prophesied. We are already told that this was going to happen. And what happened with Judas is just the fulfillment of this scripture. So to me, that's a huge deal, right? This, this very clear application of Psalm 69, answering so many of their questions. What we see in this, in this same speech, he tells them how they'll know what to do next. How do we know what to do next? We're lost. Jesus has been with us, and Jesus has been giving us step by step what to do, and how Jesus is going, how will we know what to do next? And he gives another psalm in the second part of Acts 1, verse 20. The first one, he said, May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. That happened. So he says, And let another take his office. Now, this is quoting Psalm 109, and for time's sake, we're not going to go back to 
to Psalm 109. But again, it's a, it's a psalm that's saying, when there is an enemy of a righteous person, and he is judged, he is killed, he is removed, that if he had a prominent position or office, that his prominent position should be filled by someone else. And so that's exactly what they know that they need to do here. Point two, Scripture told the apostles what to do next. So Scripture told the apostles what just happened, helped them understand what was going on in their life, and Scripture also told them what they needed to do next, which is the next thing they're going to do. We'll see it in just a moment. They are going to fill this office because Scripture told them that that's what they needed to do. But I want you to stop here for just a moment before we just continue and blow right through this. I want you to recognize something here that is extremely significant. That when we know Scripture, that Scripture is clear. Scripture is so clear, and it is so applicable, right? A lot of times we think that Scripture, man, I don't know what's going on in the Scripture. I can sit down, Brother Zach, and I open my Bible, and I start reading, and I just don't know what in the world is going on. And sometimes that is a byproduct of just simply opening our Bibles and pointing somewhere and starting to read, and you literally don't know what's going on. If you picked up a novel out of our church library and just opened it somewhere in the middle and stuck your finger and started reading, you wouldn't know what's going on there either, right? So there should be a systematic approach to how we study Scripture, starting at the beginning of a book, chapter, studying our way through it so that we do understand what's going on. We do have study helps and study aids, but a lot of times, if we're honest, it's also a byproduct of us just being biblically illiterate. We just haven't spent enough time in the Scriptures. You know, there was a point in time that I could do algebra. Those days have long passed. But when I was in the class and had been in the class, and for weeks and weeks upon months and months had, had worked at doing algebra, I was familiar with it, and I understood it, and I could practice it, and I could do it. I could pick up a, an equation that I had not done, and it might take a little time, but I could work my way through it. But brothers and sisters, I have not done algebra in a long time. And if you gave me an equation right now, I would be completely lost. And the same is true of Scripture, brothers and sisters. If you do not read and study the Bible, then you are not going to be very good at reading and studying the Bible. It takes practice. It takes time. It takes effort. It does not just come about willy-nilly. It's not just a, an osmosis process. We must study the Scripture. But when we do, we see things like this. We see people that felt lost in the world that they were in. Some of you can identify with that. Right now, with all the things going on around you, you feel like you're completely lost. And, and we ask questions time and time again about, about the, the direction that our nation is headed and the direction that our world is headed in, right? And the, the leaders that we have leading, whether our state or local governments or our federal government, and we have these questions and we don't know what's going on, but brothers and sisters... There's nothing taking place around us that the Scriptures do not speak about. There's nothing that you will find in your world today around you that the Scriptures do not inform you about, that it does not tell us to be prepared for, right? We see this idea that persecution is going to come for all of God's people. We see this idea that lost people are going to act like lost people. And we see this idea that lost people are going to go from being bad to being worse. 
and that we should expect these things, that this is the, the path that things will continue on until Christ returns. None of this should be a surprise. We see what we should do whenever we are living in a world where we feel like outcasts, that we feel like this is not home. We see why we should feel like this is not home. Brothers and sisters, just like here, Peter says, guys, we shouldn't feel lost because the Bible tells us what's happening and why it happened, and it also tells us what to do next. I'm telling you this morning, if you will spend time in the Scriptures, you will find the same thing. You will look around or you will watch the news, or you will ask a question and you will answer it from Scripture. Because Scripture is clear and it is beautiful and it is life-giving. It is informative and it is applicable. And it's not just for theologians and pastors and seminary professors. It's for disciples of Jesus Christ. We all need Scripture to know what's happening and to know what we need to do next. So if you are not studying the scriptures, let this be a call to you. As we see the early church, what were they doing? They were studying the scriptures and they were applying it so that they know what was going on and what they needed to do next. But what he says they need to do next is to find someone to take the office of Judas. And so let's look to see how that goes down. In verse 21, let's see what qualifications they had, what would be needed in this new apostle. Acts one twenty one. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there we see the job description, right? He looks and he says, all right, we need to fill his office. We need to pick a 12th apostle. How do we know who that needs to be? How can we choose somebody that could fill this office? And he said, well, we need to find somebody that fits the bill. And what is the bill of an apostle? What have they been told? They need somebody that knows who Jesus is. And this is amazing to me that, that there are multiple people here that weren't one of the disciples, that weren't one of the apostles, that had been with them the entire time. Right? There are people that have been following Jesus his entire earthly ministry that weren't already numbered among the apostles. That's an amazing thing to me. But we see that they need to pick one of these men because the, the role of an apostle would be somebody that could teach somebody that could uh, speak to who Jesus was in character, that could speak to who Jesus was uh, in far as, as being a witness, somebody that could speak to the truth that he was God in human flesh, that he did die for the sins of the world and that he did come back to life. And so they needed somebody that fit that bill and somebody that had been sent out by Jesus as well. Being a very important thing to be an apostle. So point three it's important that all disciples personally know Jesus. Now, I'll give this to you. I'm, I'm taking what was given for the apostle and applying it to us here. I'm going to be very, very clear. We are not apostles. I'm not an apostle, and you're not an apostle. That office is closed. There are 12 of those. They're not picking any more. But the way that we can understand that is for an apostle, it needed to be someone who had actively been with Jesus so that they could actively witness about Jesus. We cannot be apostles, but as disciples, we saw last week that we are also called to be witnesses about Jesus. 
as I told you last week, in order to witness about Jesus, you have to personally know Jesus. So to be an apostle, you have to fit the job description. To be a disciple, you have to fit the job description. And for us, it means that we need to know Scripture and that we need to know Christ. And we see those two things in this text very clearly. I told you last week, Daryl Bach and his commentary, a term that you'll hear me say over and over throughout our, our study in the book of Acts, spoke to disciples or apostles or followers of Jesus as people that have experienced Jesus. I love that term, people that have experienced Jesus. So I ask you this morning, and trying to apply this, have you experienced Jesus? Have you heard that sins can be forgiven, or have you had your sins forgiven? There's a very big difference in the two. Have you heard that Jesus is a perfect example of how to live, or are you actively following Jesus' perfect example? Have you heard that Scripture is life-giving, or have you experienced abundant life and joy and peace and gladness and strength and the promise of eternal life because you have followed the gospel that this scripture gives us. Because if you ask me to tell you some things about Donald Trump or Joe Biden, I can do that. I've watched the news. I've heard plenty of things. I can tell you some things about those men. But if you were to ask me to tell you some things about Chip or Amanda Kilpatrick, I can do it in a much different way. Why? Because one of those, some of those men I know something about, but some of those people I actually know. And my question to you this morning is, do you know some things about Jesus, or do you know Jesus? Have you experienced Jesus? Here, for the apostle, they needed somebody that had walked with him and had listened to him and had seen him with their own eyes. Have you walked with Jesus? Have you spent time with Jesus? Are you one of his children? Because that's what's needed in order to witness about who Jesus is. And so then we do see the last thing, how they ultimately choose who this one's going to be. So they say, here's the job description. We need somebody that's been with us the whole time, that's heard these things from Jesus in verse 23. It says, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and they fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So how did they ultimately choose? The first thing that becomes overly and abundantly clear is that they didn't just choose. What they did is they allowed God to make the choice. They allowed God to show them which one. So point four, the last point, God continued to be the guide of his people after Jesus' ascension. I want you to see that here. Jesus has gone. The Holy Spirit has still not come yet, yet God did not leave them alone. Now, there's one thing that I need to clear up. I'm not advocating that when you need to make a big decision that you pray and then roll dice. It's not what I'm telling you to do. Once again, you are not an apostle, and I am not an apostle. And they were able to operate in different ways than we are. And if you continue to read the book of Acts, which I pray that we will, you'll see there are some big decisions to be made by the church in Acts chapter 6, some big decisions in Acts chapter 13. But after the Holy Spirit comes, they don't roll dice anymore. The decisions are made by the Holy Spirit. 
and giving clearly to them. So what we need to do when we need to make decisions is we need to pray and trust that God has not left. That Jesus, although he went back to heaven, that he has not left us alone, that he has not given up the work, that he has not completely finished, that he has not gone and forgotten us, but that he has gone to heaven and he is interceding on our behalf. And that God still listens and that through the Holy Spirit we have God inside of us. And He continues to guide His people if we will listen to His guidance. Both through the Scripture and through the Holy Spirit. But those two always confirm one another. The Holy Spirit will not tell you something that is out of step with the Scripture. The Scriptures won't tell you something that is out of step with the Holy Spirit. So, what do we see here? We see a beautiful picture of what life in the early church looked like. We see men and women that are unified together praying so that they can be prepared to do the will of God. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. We see people that, that would have been confused were it not for the Holy Scriptures. And we see a reminder that we should not be confused and we should not be idle because we have the Holy Scriptures. We have the Bible that tells us clearly and plainly in an easy-to-apply easy ways, what we need to be doing. But I also know that there may be some of you here today that the Lord has used this to show you that you do not know Jesus, that you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if He has shown that to you today, if He has spoken to you, if He has done a work inside of you and called you to repentance and faith in Him, then we want to celebrate that with you. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and to just share that with me. Let me pray with you. And if you have questions to set up a time that I'm not going to try and stand down here and sing a hundred verses of just as I am while I answer all those questions, but I would love to set up a time that we could go over those things. But we also want to celebrate that the Lord is working in your life. If you feel that the Lord is calling you to membership here, I would love to talk to you about that. Again, we want to celebrate those things with you. But also this morning, I know that there may be some of you that are Christians, and you know that you're Christians. And there's some of you that are members of this church, and you just realize this morning that you need to be doing something differently. Whether that's witnessing or studying the Scriptures or applying the Scriptures to your life or seeking God's guidance, that there are things that we need to do. And so I want us to have a time that we could pray. Here, before we leave and get distracted by a million other things, that we pray and ask the Lord to, to give us the wisdom to listen to him and to do those things. And then there's one last group, and you may be here today, and you're just excited because you're reminded that God hasn't left us. So in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And as we prepare for that, I just want to tell you that if you're here and you're in that group and you're just excited because you're reminded that God is still with you and that we do have the scriptures and he is showing us what to do, then I just want you to sing. Just sing in response and joy and excitement because of who he is and what he's done for us. But brothers and sisters, there is a response for all of us to this scripture. And so while we have a time of invitation, our praise team is going to come. They're going to lead us as we sing, just as I am. And you do. Pray where you are. Pray at these altars. Come, let me pray with you. Or sing in response to the Lord. But if you would stand as we sing this morning.